I'm Alex, the CEO and founder of Scale. We label data for AI companies. I'm here with Christian Segedy, currently a research scientist at Google Research. He's worked on a number of influential results in his research career. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, a couple of them, so he published the first state-of-the-art use of deep neural networks for object detection and images in 2013. Then in 2014, he published the first paper on adversarial examples, which is obviously now a, a hot research topic. He also designed the Inception architecture, which is one of the most popular architectures for object detection and images. And he invented batch norm, which really introduced the concept of normalization in deep learning and is now used in most uh, modern neural network architectures. And now he's one of the few deep learning researchers working on formal reasoning. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so I, I wanted to start uh, actually just by asking, when you were working on perception, I think starting six, seven years ago, why were you working on it? Why do you think it was interesting or important research? So when I joined Google in 2010, uh, so AI was not really a popular topic. Uh, most people uh, looked at very skeptical eyes. And uh, my, my purpose with joining Google is to learn machine learning and AI. And uh, actually, I was not so super much into perception per se. Uh, I was much more excited about learning machine learning in general, mm -hmm. because my goal always was to, to design systems that are artificially intelligent. So, Actually, reasoning was my original motivation to learn machine learning, but at that time, vision was one of the most obvious outlets. Right. And I had the luck that I, I managed to get into a group that, who, who, who did research on computer vision. Why did you believe in machine learning at that point? Because I think the results weren't that compelling at that point, yeah. that you could really believe that machines would be able to do all these things that, um, that humans do very well. So what was, what was like the core of that? I've believed in AI and machine learning for decades. I always wanted to work in this area. It's just that when I, I, I did my study, that was not very popular, and it was hard to get a job in that domain. But I always thought that machines will eventually uh, learn to learn just as well as humans. We just don't know the right techniques. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised how little new ideas was necessary. So actually, most of the ideas we use are from the 70s and 80s. Right. So, so hardly anything new. But you, you sort of, you just had this like personal conviction that, hey, machines should be able to learn as well as humans. Yes, my guess was that uh, biological systems can do learning. And they actually, so learning is ubiquitous. So it shouldn't be something that, is, that, that requires a lot of really uh, hard engineering or some really big jumps or ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I mean, biology figured it out. So we should be able to somehow get there. I didn't know it was so simple, though. So I was. <laughs> I thought it was much more complicated than right. what we ended up with, yeah. Right. You expected it would be, it'd be much harder to get, get good at these problems. Yes, yes. And now, uh, what did you expect was sort of the, um, the importance of your work in perception uh, when, you were, when you were working on it? It sounds like you sort of fell into it. But what did you think was going to be the impact of that work? Yeah, so I didn't know how. So what is the timeline to get to usable results? So the fact that we. We got to use the results in two years from, let's say, 2012 to 2014 uh, was a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. But I was not really surprised that it happened within, let's say, 
I would have bet that it happens within a decade or five years, but I wouldn't have expected two years uh, for vision to improve so much. Right. When I started computer vision, I didn't even know how far it was, so I was surprised how poor it was before right. I started working on it. So, yeah. So it was, it was sort of it went through this massive progress over yeah. over just a few. And years. my other other thing was that I had zero background in computer vision, so my only only bet was to do produce good results is to do something that nobody else did. I mean, there are a few people did like Alex Kuzhevsky's groundbreaking work, so that that were parallel to, to when I worked on it. But so mostly, most computer vision researchers I worked with at Google were absolutely super skeptical about neural networks in general mm -hmm. in 2012, in right. So that was hardly any traction. So it was nice for me because we do it through our hand. We could like two of us could like do a lot of things quickly before most people jumped on it. It's one of these interesting things where most people have been working on it for a very long time, didn't was very skeptical, didn't expect the methods to work, and so it's because you it was like a beginner's mind in some sense or a yes, beginner's yes. approach. Yes, I thought that that's my only chance. So, <laughs> so just they do it hundred percent because if it doesn't work out, then I I have no chance to catch up with all the other people and. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> got it. Yeah, so it was, it was almost like, okay, deep learning has to work. Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't have to. I mean, I could have survived without it. I just said, okay, I bet on it because I have nothing to lose. The title of your first paper on adversarial examples was uh, Intriguing Properties of Neural Networks. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was almost like you had discovered this curiosity uh, and it, it wasn't really framed in a in the context that they are now. Right now, it's like safety is sort of the the primary context in which people talk about them. Yeah. So actually, it was it's a stupid uh, story because the I had these adversarial examples lying in my drawer for more than a year or almost two years. I, I I discovered them in 2011, but then Wojciech came to me and wanted to write a paper with all kinds of. So I was too lazy to publish it, and then. Uh, which I said, okay, you have this thing and we can combine with other stuff and then publish a joint paper with various intriguing properties. And then people started to bail out and they, they didn't put their own stuff because it was like <laughs> not interesting enough or whatever. And then the paper mostly was about adversarial examples. Yeah. But if I would have known it beforehand, I would have just wrote a paper like with, with Wojciech alone or maybe completely alone and then it, uh, like just with the title of adversarial example. So actually, we planned with my manager to write a paper uh, with the title like uh, what like blind spots in neural networks mm -hmm. uh, a year earlier, just on that topic. But we we just I just was too lazy to do it. Interesting. I see. So <laughs> originally there were other intriguing properties that you wanted to talk about, but then uh, then everybody else dropped out, and it was just about uh, adversarial. Yeah, yeah. Examples. So basically, the paper there was another intriguing property in the first section, and then. That was the adversarial example, but nobody cares about the first intriguing property that was kind of like, yeah, it was not so super intriguing. <laughs> to, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's interesting. Like, you had discovered these adversarial examples um, two years before you published the paper, yeah. and you just, it was, uh, it was, you didn't think they were important enough to publish. Like, yeah, I, I thought it should be published, but I didn't, uh, I, just uh, procrastinated on doing it. It was I, I always wanted to run a bit more experiments and wanted to enlist somebody to do an ImageNet experiment for me. I, I had experiments with various datasets, but not on ImageNet, and I thought that was important. Yeah. And then it was a Wojciech volunteer to do that for ImageNet, and then somehow the paper grew and uh, like yeah, well, well, <laughs> it was it was not planned this way. So that's how it happened. But it doesn't really. Uh, I mean, 
main thing is that uh, that this thing has awareness. But I think if I wouldn't have published it, then somebody else would have came up with the same idea. I mean, several people came up with similar ideas within the same one-year period, like from 2014 to 15. So, right. So I, I I had it in 2011, but I was that kind of <laughs> uh, yeah. Unfortunately, only had like 10, 15 people knew about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm curious. I, now it's a pretty hot topic, um, generally framed again uh, in the context of safety. Like, how can we deploy these systems to uh, deploy them to the real world if adversarial examples exist? Um, wh why did you think at the time that they were important, adversarial examples? It was obvious to me that if deep learning takes off, uh, you can uh, use adversarial examples for all kinds of attacks. So, and so that was one of my motivating talk in 2012 or something that uh, yeah. to say, okay, for example, spam filters could be circumvented, yeah, things like that. So I, I thought a lot about these implications of this, uh, of this phenomenon. And yep. So, and then people got aware. Actually, Jeff Hinton was in one of those early talks on adversarial examples a year before this was published. And, and he was really shocked. <laughs> but he said, if that's true, then we have to do something about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, there were obvious implications, practical implications. Yeah. Based on the state of research now, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of incremental work uh, to make neural networks robust, these adversarial examples. I'm curious, how is your, um, your, your optimism or bullishness on deep learning changed over time. It sounds like initially you were, you were skeptical, then you started working on it and started working and that was exciting. And now deep learning is sort of the state of the art for a, a large number of problems. How has your optimism with respect to deep learning changed over time? It might, might change very, very quickly. So I mean, I was in very early Google Brain meetings like when it was like a few people and I saw immediately that like super clever people like Jeff Dean or Andrew Wang were how were they thinking about this and what was their thinking process? So I, I, I got convinced within a few months that that's a good <laughs> idea. And actually I think, so if people ask me about whether it's a hype or something, I would, I always say that even if you're like, all the research would stop right now and nobody would do anything new in deep learning. You would just take all the technology that exists and try to exploit it as maximum extent. And still there, there would be like 10 years of uh, really cool uh, advances in technology just based on the current state of machine learning and AI. But most people don't uh, really get it, I think. So that they don't see the potential uh, in that. But if you look at it, the research is accelerating. Right. So <laughs> therefore, I'm, I'm extremely bullish. But I would say that deep learning itself is a, is a, is a poor notion because it was designed, so it was coined when when it was like, it was referring to a few layers that were like not one layer, but two or three. Right. And it's like, okay, we, we do it deep because it, we are not, not one layer. Right. But I, I think it's like it developed into something that you have pro complicated programs that are parameterized by all kinds of matrices or tensors and you're learning those tensors. And so that, that it became a much more generic notion than it used to be. Right. So, and I think that this tendency will go on. So right now we are not designing the network architectures anymore. We let uh, other computer, uh, uh, so machine learning system design them. So, and uh, so therefore I think is deep learning has a very short 
time frame future, it will be superset by general program synthesis. Right. So that's why I think it's program synthesis is the future, it's not deep learning. <laughs> you, you, deep learning is sort of the dumbest way to, to do metaprogramming. Exactly. In some sense. Exactly. Yeah. And sort of metaprogram metaprogramming and program synthesis is, is really the future. Yes, I think as we generalize deep learning and we improve program synthesis, they will merge. And basically, machine learning is about creating a program that solves a task automatically. Right. So currently, uh, if you just use gradient recent to do this, then, then you, you can solve certain tasks with certain engineering effort. But if you, if you have like more sophisticated software, engineer, uh, software synthesis methods, then you can, do, you can solve some much more general task automatically than now. So basically, we, we are moving into the terrain that, that everything will be synthesized by machines. So we have this more and higher and higher levels of, of uh, fee, uh, automated feedback loops. Right. I think it's, it's sort of well put where it's like, even, even with what we have today, if we just exploited that and implemented it yeah. in a bunch of different areas, that would already be sort of an astronomical amount of impact. Yes. Um, and then, but then research is getting, is improving as well. And so it's sort of like you're layering, you can layer two exponential curves on top of each other and say, hey, it's gonna, <laughs> who knows where it's gonna go, right? Yes. Um, so I think it's kind of like similar to, so how software has eaten the world from, let's say from 1990 to 2010, I think AI is eating software now. Right. From, from let's say 2015 to, to the next 20 years at least. I don't know what comes after that, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's like currently is kind of like 1990. So if you would have bet on computers and software in 1990, then you would have been as right as now if you bet on AI. Right. Do you think that state-of-the-art perception systems have gotten to a point where uh, perception is no longer the bottleneck for any robotics problem? I think it's not 100% there, but close. So I mean, at least uh, there is clearly a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, that was not the case in 2010 or 2012 even. Right. But now I would say most people think perception might not be perfect, but there is a clear improvement path that we are on. And, it's, and it will continue until we are there. You used to work on perception, and now you work on formal reasoning. And as you mentioned before, like formal reasoning was actually your your primary goal. And so now you're working on, uh, like for example, your most recent paper was about theorem proving. So actually proving mathematical theorems using, uh, using deep learning. Why are, you, why are you working on formal reasoning? The way that we interact with computers have been essentially the same way that was figured out in 1950, 1950s. So it's basically essentially we are all using a glorified Fortran compilers. Right. Actually, even the complexity of programming didn't went down. It's a, if anything, it went up. So, and I think it's like now with new AI techniques and technologies, it's, it slowly starts uh, to become possible that computers start to adapt to humans and not the humans have to adapt to computers. So the past 30, 40 years was about people getting used to computers and start to use them and uh, uh, training a lot of software engineers. But I think it can be fundamentally changed by changing the way we interact with computers so that they can understand fuzzy reasoning, they can understand intention, they can understand a lot of things that humans take for granted. Then 
uh, we will be able to interact with computers much more naturally and then productivity could go up a lot. And I think in order to start with that, you could start with some practical task that is, has a real world root. But I thought that what is the simplest possible thing where you can make sure that your system understands fuzzy thought processes and it can turn them into formalized processes. And I think mathematics is the cleanest example of that because it doesn't rely on any domain level knowledge. So it, you don't need any real world knowledge or anything extra. Everything is there. It's, it's in the axioms. It's there, there are only a few of them. So the question is, can we create a, a system that allows you to interact about mathematics just the way that you interact with a human, but, and it can interact at the same level as a really good human mathematician and also understands you in natural language. So, so that would be a first step toward systems that could revolutionize uh, computer science or how do we interact with computers. Because once you have the first step, like it's like a superhuman mathematician, right. <laughs> then you can, you can infuse more and more domain knowledge and then you can do software uh, synthesis with it. That's why I think it's software synthesis is the future because I think if like, so mathematics is just one step for me to software synthesis. Right. And software synthesis is the unification of machine learning and programming. <laughs> right. So yeah, therefore I think it's like that's a logical next step to do mathematics. But for some people it's completely outrageous. So most people who work on formal reasoning for decades, they think it's kind of like that's a, that's a ridiculous uh, <laughs> dream. It, it will never happen. But I saw that even in 2011, a lot of people in computer vision saw that ah, this, all this deep learning stuff is a ridiculous dream. It will never happen. Right. And it happened in two years. So I think, <laughs> think it's like there is a significant chance that all with this pattern recognition and perception uh, capabilities, we will be able to uh, get to the point where we, get, uh, uh, we can get mathematical capabilities and communication capabilities uh, similar, so that it's at least useful for humans. So basically, the, my point is that, for example, if you had a software that could read mathematical literature in human form, that would be a very strong indication that we can really read fuzzy reasoning that is given like. So imagine that you have an employee that you want him to program something, and then you give him a task and say, yeah, do this. You don't have to describe all the steps because then you don't need the employee, then you just write the program by yourself. Right. So similarly with the computer, imagine that you have an artificial intern or artificial employee that you just tell the same things that you would tell with your uh, software engineer and then uh, it would program it for you and then come back and then you say, ah, I wanted something slightly different. And then it iterates a bit, but you, and at the end of the day, you get something useful. And I think that there is kind of like, even if you take the best programmer, there is a, like a potential there that is kind of like, 100x easily that you can accelerate software engineering if you would have that kind of capabilities. Right. So that's what I think is the possibility is that you could make a, do a software startup without knowing any programming. Right. This sort of theorem proving is the first step to, to sort of full program synthesis. Yeah, basically uh, to understand you without fully specifying everything. Right. Right. Those sort of like fuzzy commands yeah. that humans give yeah. to the yeah. world. I myself having spent uh, spend a lot of time doing math. <laughs> um, I, I, I wonder, like, why, why do you think it's actually a tractable problem? 
some of the similar reasoning problems uh, like computer games, like chess and go. It looks like they have remar remarkably simple solutions. So most of them boils down to perception that we understand pretty well. And you can solve them. The, there is a lot of complicating factors in math. So one of the most complicating factors is that self play is not an option. So you cannot really be slightly better than your opponent. You have to be either prove something or not. Right. So that is like a, a clear failure. In chess, you can be like, yeah, beat it 10% of the time. So you can do self play and then you very slowly pull yourself up. Right. So that's not an option for math. So that, that's why we're working on it. So that's why we think it's an exciting problem because it's dif different and difficult. On the other hand, we think that perception is a very strong tool that allows us to do reasoning better than everything uh, before. So, so almost all the tools that exist, I think, will be obsolete just like AlexNet obsolete in most of the computer vision before. So most of the feature generation before, right? at least. So there is a great potential and we, we see that there were no real tasks that were actually untractable for deep learning because uh, we've given enough data. The tricky question, how do we generate enough data to, to, to have the initial uh, system that, that can reason at a decent pace so that it, it can put itself up? In some sense, your belief is we haven't found a problem that's too big for that's too difficult for uh, deep learning yet. You just need enough data. And, and so it's, it's how are you going to collect enough data? I mean, what's your strategy for collecting enough data for formal reasoning? We rely on certain existing uh, formal corpuses, but these are relatively small. So they, they typically uh, they were developed to prove one or big, one big mathematical theorem, like the four-color theorem, or finite simple groups, stuff like that. So there are like three, four of these big corpuses, but these are not big enough to, to pull yourself up. So the, the really crazy idea here is to read all of the human mathematics literature and then learn to formalize them. So we want to use that initial small set of data as kind of like just the spark to initiate a feedback loop in which you learn to read human language mathematics and turn them into conjectures and then prove those conjectures and then work your way up. So that's our strategy. And you have a lot of uh, uh, natural language mathematics. The good side effects of it is that at the same time, the system will learn to understand natural language. So if we get that, then we don't just get a very good mathematical system. We have, we have a really good, strong system that can that demonstrate strong natural language understanding, which is a, which would be in itself a moonshot goal to get there. But <laughs> I think addressing both of them at the same time has a higher chance than addressing them in separation. That's really interesting, actually. You think that understanding formal reasoning from just math textbooks and math papers literally, doing, doing that is it has a higher likelihood of, of, uh, of succeeding even though strong natural language understanding is a prerequisite, which we're not, we're, we're not quite close to. Okay, so there are no real alternatives to do wrong, strong reasoning. So either you collect a lot of training data, but even scale wouldn't be able to collect the data for us because no. you don't have access to mathematicians that are on a large scale. <laughs> So it's very hard to co collect training data for formalized mathematics, right? Right. So, so that's not a, not a, not a, 
realistic path. So if you want to create a superhuman mathematician, then the only alternative would be to do open-ended exploration of mathematics and figure out what are the underlying principles of interestingness in mathematics and learn how to discover that part of mathematics. Even that wouldn't work too well, because even if your system would learn to argue high-level mathematics, you will not be able to tell a concrete problem to it because you don't speak the same language as the system. So you will have to formalize your statements in the system's uh, basic terminology, which would be like self-developed. So you, you, will not, you will have to understand it just like an alien artifact. So it would be very hard to work with such a system. So therefore, I think that the self self-exploring mathematician system, we might learn very good, so become a very good uh, uh, reasoning engine, but you don't, you can never tell whether it is one or not. So, right. So it, in order that your only chance is to learn to communicate at the same time as to, as to reason. And I think if you want to learn natural language understanding, so a lot of people make the mistake, I think, that they treat language as an object. So you try to learn natural language understanding as part of manipulating the natural language. But natural language is not, or languages in general are not about the language itself. They are just communication mediums of something else. So I think natural language understanding is not really natural language understanding. It's communicating about your understanding of something. So it's really like understanding of mathematics, communicated via natural language, or understanding of uh, the world communicated via natural language. So, so basically, the natural language is a compressed communication channel. Right. That's really hard to do if you don't have something to communicate about. You don't have a well-controlled environment to communicate about. But mathematics is a really hierarchical, complicated environment about which you can communicate so I think that's the perfect medium to do real natural language understanding as a prototype. Right. And once you have mathematics, you could extend that system with all kinds of domain knowledge because it has all the logic, so you can argue about anything, and so you have the logical foundations to, to do that. So, yep. so I think, therefore, it's natural language understanding alone is a harder task than together with mathematics, and doing mathematics alone is a harder task than with with natural language understanding. Right. Natural language understanding alone, you don't have, it's sort of communication in a vacuum. You have yeah. nothing to communicate yeah. about. And so now you have a backbone of, yes. of formal, uh, like formal reasoning or formal statements, yes. uh, like uh, a lot yeah, It's of basically a sandbox. So your mathematics is a sandbox that you can manipulate in the memory and detect like a small word right. about which you can communicate. Right. Your current research, I think, is extremely ambitious. It's like it, these are these are ambitious things to achieve. Why do you think that they're actually possible? So I already mentioned that that I think so. For example, AlphaGo and AlphaStar and all these methods show that reasoning is possible right. with uh, with strong perception and uh, relatively strong perception is possible with deep neural networks. Right. So therefore, I think we can do a lot of things that human can do. Uh, with deep learning, uh, relatively uh, high certainty. Right. So that's that's one of the arguments. The other argument, but I, I I agree, it's still not granted, even with this with this supporting evidence. Most people, even half year before AlphaGo came out, thought that that Go requires that level of human intuition that is not possible with computers, or not now, or maybe within ten years or twenty years or something. And then AlphaGo came out. 
turned out okay, you just use a ResNet inside and uh, <laughs> then add it to an existing Go engine and you get pretty good. And then you just go a bit further and then you get even like, superhuman. So, so I think that most, so that component that previously looked like poorly human, that ability to, to do this fuzzy intuition, fuzzy reasoning, this kind of artistic spirit that looked like uniquely human. And most people think it was not possible for computers. But we see that actually this intuition part is, is basically a deep learning solve that intuition right. part. So basically we have now an artificial intuition module that's called deep learning. So we can infuse that into a lot of domains if you want. So. Your most recent paper, the, the approach is essentially, it's at a high level uses um, a tree search uh, with a neural network as sort of the heuristics engine, sort of, sort of this mm -hmm. like intuition yes. engine, and switches, I think it switches between that and, and uh, the, the sort of classical methods. Yes. What do you think are sort of the limitations of that approach? Yeah, so that's a very limited approach actually because so you already give it a cage, so it has to be inside a certain search <laughs> method, so your deep learning algorithm is not really has the freedom to, to, to explore the search space as it wants. So our next paper is that's coming out on an archive soon, like in a few weeks, turns this around, and what we say is we have like a search environment in which the the network has all kinds of actions to perform, and then the network becomes the, the outside and the search environment becomes just an environment on which it operates. So I think that's a much better uh, approach, but even that has probably limitations, so we're thinking about how to transcend most of the limitations to give the maximum freedom to, to the network so that it can be maximally free to explore to fill in all the spaces that are possible to fill in, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but yes, I, I agree with you. It was, it was an important first uh, check. We wanted to just check whether neural networks had something to existing search. And we were like, so it was a, it was kind of success, but it was not really, it uh, was not that, that you reach the escape velocity with it. It cannot be open-endedly improved upon. What, what would you say are the other exciting or potentially underrated uh, areas of research um, in, in AI right now? I think one of the, that goes back to your other questions, what should we do about AI not being misused? Right. So a lot of people do lip service and say, yeah, we do this and that, but I think it's, so how do you combat certain negative effects of machine learning and what are those negative effects? Because a lot of them are kind of invisible. So, so how, how do people make decisions about our lives? So basically like, like for example, insurance companies or credit uh, uh, agencies and stuff like that. So, so all these, and this is just a small thing, I don't really know everything. So as AI gets applied more and more, then all these biases that go into those AI systems uh, will affect everybody more and more. And I think that's something one should, should do much more research and take it much more seriously. And I'm happy that Google is taking a lead on that actually. So it's uh, so they, they, a lot of people notice that, and 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 that is a significant push. But I, I think it's it's kind of like not really rewarded on the society level to do this kind of research because there is no no obvious immediate right. monetary impact or, or or positive impact of that. But right. I think it's a, that's an important thing that one should do. I should research why we are researching uh, AI technologies. 
Thanks so much for being here, Christian. It sounds like to, to sum it all up, you're definitely an AI optimist and formal reasoning is on the critical path for a strong AI. Thank you, Alex.